Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Lizard Hour, hosted by Josh Ortiz and Wild Man J.D. Hartzell. And here's our Lizard Hour sponsors. Tropical Reptiles and Exotics has some of the best tegus around and many other reptile projects. Go and check them out on Facebook. Look for the albino tegu in profile pictures. ZillaRules.com For all our reptile and amphibian pets needs, check out Zilla's products catalog at ZillaRules.com Feed those hungry reptiles at coldbloodycafe.com. Get prices online and nationwide flat rate shipping. Stony LLC, check him out. He's got the animal equipment we need for the great snake hooks, stump rippers, and other great products. Reptilesbysands.com. Captive bred monitors, mangrove blue tails, working on the whiteout water monitors, and many more species to come. Check them out, reptilesbysands.com. Don't forget, everybody, support the U.S. ARC. They fight for us to keep the herps. The following are the Lizard Hour sponsors. Check out ReptileUV.com for your lighting needs and education. Home of the original designer and extended warranty on select Mega Ray UV bulbs. Remember, reptile lighting is a process, not a bulb. Fairy Tail Dragons specialize in high-quality morphs of dragons, annals, geckos, and much more. Check them out on Facebook. Innovative Ectotherms, specializing in chuckawallas, morphs, collared lizards, and more. Look for them on Facebook. Herptofauna by Josh Ortiz, specializing in Asian water monitors, lacertas, tegus, and many more. Lizard Hour is presented by Herpentime Radio. Honey, your pet broke out again. Oh, man. I guess it's time for a new custom cages enclosure. 
custom cages, safe, strong, and dependable reptile enclosures. Welcome, Lizard Files, to another uh, fine edition of Lizard Hour. Uh, I'm joined by my co-host, uh, Josh Ortiz. Josh, what's going on there, brother? Josh, are you there? Josh, do you hear me? All right. Uh, yeah. Can I move on? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was, I was yelling there for a minute. I didn't, I didn't know if you heard me or not, but uh, what's going on there, brother? Uh, nothing much. Just uh, busy on the farm. Had a few things hatch out. Some Lacerda's hatch out. I have some um, water monitors that are laying eggs, too. So it looks like I'm going to have more black dragons in a few months. So that's always exciting. How are your uh, water monitors doing? I'm actually sitting here watching him, and he's, he was out here swimming for a little bit, and then he walked up on top of the basin platform. Now he's sitting there watching me. He hears me talking. So he kind of comes over to the edge of the cage, and he kind of gives me a look like, are you going to come over here and pet me? So. <laughs> yeah. I saw the new cage. Um, I was seeing it on your post on Facebook. I wasn't really sure what to expect because I haven't seen um, their large cages before. And then you were kept on posting, like, the updates and the updates. And I saw the final post you have, and I was like, oh, that's actually pretty neat. It's, like, really aesthetically pleasing, and, you know, I like the way they situated it and everything. So, But that's good that you have that up and running. That's exciting. And it is very exciting. I have to actually do a video uh, for uh, custom cages. So, But I need to clean it up a little bit because, the, you know, monitors are a little messy. They get water on the glass and you know, you know how that goes, bro. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I'm looking forward to seeing it. It looks, it looks really neat. It looks like, a, like kind of like a display enclosure, like the split display quality enclosure you could have like in your living room if you wanted to. All right, yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome, brother. Uh, we got Kai Pan on, and I was talking to him a little bit about before the show uh, about mangrove monitors. I was telling him that uh, years ago, probably. I'm going to say 20 years ago, I had a mangrove that came in. And, you know, usually they took them from the Solomon Islands or New Guinea. And I told them, I said that one was pretty much yellow and black. But, you know, now you see all different localities of these uh, mangrove monitors, you know, and it's really kind of amazing. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because um, as soon as I heard that we were interviewing him and his work on the mangroves, I was excited because of the same thing because they have so much polymorphism and then they have the different locales and I'm sure he's going to tell us much more about it um, since he specializes in that. And it'll be good for me too, because, you know, I know of them, but I don't know specifics about them, but they vary so much. And um, so I don't know, it's just really, really interesting. So I'm really looking forward to interview. I'm really uh, pumped about it. All right. Well, I say we bring Kai on. He's been waiting for a little bit here. So Kai P.M., welcome to Lizard Hour. Hey, hey, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Um, so it looks like um, you've been working with, you know, reptiles for quite some time. And I've actually was uh, taking a look at your Facebook page. And you have a lot of really interesting projects. But um, before, before we get started, what we usually do is we hear about people's, you know, background and how they got started with reptiles. So do you want to give us yeah. uh, a little info on that? Um, yeah, I mean, 
I, I guess I would say mine started out probably just like I would say most of the community, you know, with uh, the bread and butter, you know, red sliders, iguanas, um, and things like that. Um, I I started off at a local flea market, you know, and it was one of my friends at the time, and his friend's family had like a pet store in the flea market, and they were just, you know, selling iguanas left and right, and um, that's pretty much what got me started in liking reptiles and wanting to keep them and realizing my my, my niche and what I'd like and stuff like that. Um, and I pretty much started with basic green iguanas and um, even even like a bearded dragon. And during those times, they weren't readily bred yet. And some people were breeding them, but it wasn't like how it is today or even 10 years ago. And uh, I would they would have a problem with uh, taming, you know, and that's, that's the issue is having animals that are nice enough for people to take home. And that's like the whole interest of having some large lizard around because you don't really want an aggressive one. And I would take some green iguanas home and they would ask me how I got them so tolerable and how like, you know, docile they were after I would, I would bring them back for sale. Um, and it, it, it went from there I would take home anything almost that was or not sellable, you know. Um, and uh, I eventually took home a Nile monitor, and it was a little thing, and that's where I fell in love with something so, like, dinosaur-like or, or like a velociraptor. And um, it was aggressive. It was a small little thing, maybe like 10, 12 inches, and it would bite all the time. And I would try to, you know, handle it and try to work with it and, See if uh, I can get it to to tame down, and you know, going forward, I pretty much raised it up a little bit and brought it back, and they ended up selling it. Um, and for a while, I was just just doing that just so I can have reptiles, you know. And um, and then uh, it it really, uh, I guess, uh, really allowed me to get in get into the pet industry, especially around here in the Bay Area, um, Northern California, where I'm at, and I w- was able to move at a very young age with my family to Sunnyvale, and during that time, I was living in San Jose growing up, but when I reached maybe like just turning, getting into my teens, 12 and 13 years old, we moved to Sunnyvale, where this this pet store at the time was called Sunnyvale Reptiles, and it was it was down the street from where I, where I moved to. And, you know, I came there every day. I would, you know, go there after school, and then I I got a volunteer job there, um, you know, and I was very young, maybe middle school, sixth, seventh grade, and already, you know, just trying to work. And I was doing things that they didn't realize um, a 12-year-old can do, like, you know, realizing how to remove ticks and, and mites from stuff or dealing with extremely aggressive stuff when I was just, uh, or what they thought at the time was just, you know, some, some amateur, you know what I mean? And, uh, and, and eventually I just, I worked there and worked with them for years, maybe seven to 10 years easily until I was uh, 20 years old, 21. And, um, you know, we ended up parting ways. They ended up selling the business and all that stuff like that. And, yeah, that's pretty much where I got into monitors, like how I am now. I, I've always, I guess, I've always been into getting into all kinds of monitors. Um, 
you know, mangroves and peach throats and Niles and white throats. I've actually probably, because of the pest store days, you know, been able to come across and buy or keep a lot of a lot of rare stuff um, that, like, a normal 15, 16-year-old shouldn't have, you know. Like, I was bringing my sulfurs and, and um, like, my togian to, to school, you know, and um, and it just grew from there. And I've never never really left uh, keeping monitors. I've always tried to, like, study them. And even when I wasn't really keeping hardcore, maybe just one animal, I was on the forums, and, and they just grew from there, you know. And back then, I think when we were a lot, or when I was a lot younger, um, before Facebook took over and everything in the last decade or so, you know, the forum life was where it was at, you know. And um, you guys probably remember that a lot of a lot of places, and we would go there and, you know, all of us, all of us just really tag along with the commenting and everything like that. And um, information back then was was golden, you know. Um, I would say like now it's it's easily lost on Facebook, but back then like we would be able to go to a certain forum, you know, click in a certain type of um, um, an idea or a word in a link and. And the search engine would find it for us, you know, and it, it was very, very helpful. And now, nowadays, you know, the form life isn't what it used to be, and it's it's taken over by Facebook and everything like that. So, um, but yeah, going into keeping monitors, I just now now I kind of uh, I really enjoyed a certain species after keeping so many, you know, and also realizing realistically what I can handle. Obviously, I. I like the smaller and medium guys because, you know, they don't take as much space. And I, I would love to have water monitors again, but even when I was younger, I bit off more than I can shoot, you know, and uh, buying and raising it to maybe two to three feet was simple, but once it was to the five and six feet or even bigger than that, um, I ended up selling or, you know, getting rid of or something like that. And, uh, you know, it's just things you learn as as you grow, you know, um, I wish I would have thought smarter when I was younger and didn't spend as much money or or maybe focused on projects instead of just buying cool stuff, you know. Um, and uh, now it's taken me to where I like a certain species and um, I've been able to keep mangroves before but not like how I do now. And before I was just just heating them and feeding them, not really worried about specific temperatures, you know, maybe I would want the tank to be 100 degrees, but I wasn't really focusing on surface temperatures, nor was I doing anything with nesting or soil. I would just, you know, keep them. They would sometimes be on a, a couple inches of soil, and that was it, you know. And um, and now learning, learning about a lot of different species on what I can handle, what I enjoy, um, you know, and also just what – somebody isn't already doing as well. You know, like there's a lot of people that work with, with water monitors and and a lot of people that work with dwarf species and people that are doing Argus and white throats and nobody is really working with um, the Indicus type too much. You know, there are, I wouldn't say nobody, but there are a handful of people that are trying and they have, you know, either pairs or they're working on navigating the right sexes, um, but I've realized that this species is getting a, a crummy rap, you know. Um, they're 
they're come they're coming in quite cheap and people don't really care to keep them too long only because they're cheap, you know, and they kind of get just pawned off because people are, for one, misunderstanding this species because they are very shy. They don't do many things in public. Um, and just keeping them alive together has been proven to be a little bit difficult among other keepers. And even myself, like I've almost lost a female um, just this last year to another female. And, um, you know, just just to go into how how aggressive they can be, um, you know, like I'm kind of patching up lizards every couple months or so and trying to make sure that they're alive every single time that I do go in and check them. Um, and I've learned that this is a species that I've really, I've, I've learned to enjoy as I've, you know, tried to crack them and, um, more so of getting them to breed and what to do and what not to do. And really, like, I still, to this day, I mean, I understand some of the steps on breeding monitors and, you know, kind of what I have to pay attention to, but my lizards don't really show me any of that stuff where I'm more so of guessing when I see them. And that's, that's a very hard part. of I've, I've uh, learned to change my enclosure types before I used to just pile a bunch of um, logs and cork tubes and let them hide wherever. And that was that was hindering my breeding, actually, instead of helping. It would, it would allow the female to escape, but it would allow the female to escape the male all the time, 100% of the time, instead of him maybe getting a chance to, you know, do some courting without her just running away. Um, and that's where I'm at now. I think I think the clutches that I have had um, were, you know, just me learning and getting the process down. And, you know, as long as my females are nesting, that's all I care about. You know, as long as they're not egg-bound and, and they're not suffering in any way, they're able to just easily cast it and nest it. Um, instead of, you know, scattering them all over the place or, you know, onesie twosies here and then wait a few days and another onesie twosies. And that can be actually quite dangerous for a female when she has to scatter eggs like that. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've gotten to the point where I've also tried to learn to use nest boxes and things like that appropriately so that way I also don't lose any to the male, um, you know, and, Getting into getting into breeding them has been has been pretty challenging, actually. Yeah, I ha- I've had a couple eggs. I mean, a couple eggs put in the incubator. You know, some not really go all the way. One egg out of you know a couple of different clutches go all the way. And I've learned too. You know, like when I got my first clutch, I learned that the eggs were quite porous and bumpy. And um, uh, another another keeper told me that that was because I was lacking in calcium. And then I started to do things differently um, with, you know, my water, my amount of calcium. Uh, I would, I now inject liquid calcium and I dust almost everything instead of maybe only doing it a few times a week, especially for my females, you know, and, and now the eggs come out pearly white without any of the bumps on them from being maybe calcium deficient. Um, And, you know, just things like that. Just just learning the whole process. 
or parts of the process as I go, um, seeing seeing what I can relate to other keepers and um, and move forward. You know, that's pretty much where I'm at right now. Is not really getting successful clutches over and over and over. But last year I got one hatch. Now this year I'm trying to improve my ways. You know, and um, yeah, just get better at it. Really. That that's great. You actually um, that that was perfect. You covered a lot of you know questions I actually had, but but before I forget to to ask this question, in, in terms of their and and their geographic range, because a lot of times I you know I hear about all these different you know types and all these different locales and stuff within um within the Indicus complex, but if, maybe if um if you give us more information on that. Um, to kind of break it down a little bit, that would, that would be great. Yeah, um, so they range. I mean, I would say just those Micronesian islands, you know, the Solomon Islands, and then also getting into North Australia too. And we're seeing them come in. I mean, they're all lumped together as Solomon Island and maybe a couple of different localities, but really everybody is trying to say that they're coming from the Solomon Islands, um, which I believe... I, I, which I can't fully believe, you know what I'm saying? Just because they come in different colors, um, different temperament. They even just, they come in much different than what we used to get several years ago. Um, before, I think a few years ago, we would just get, yeah, the, that Solomon Island type, typically the black and the yellow. But now we're getting, you know, blues. And I've even seen a white and black locality. Um, and I'm seeing also some of, like, the Maruk or green spots that people want to call. I really, to tell you the truth, yes, I have. I've studied a lot about locality and the mangrove monitor itself and, you know, trying to pinpoint and look for field herpers and um, uh, pe- different people that go and photograph. Take, take photographs outside in the wild, you know, and try to go by where their pinpoint is. But still, it's um, all the little islands. They're coming from all over almost, you know, and we're only getting a couple types. And the way I'm trying to do it is I'm really only puzzling them by the, what they kind of look like. And the ones that look alike are getting bred together. And the ones that aren't so much like the ones that are bluish, I'll try to breed those together. Like that's what I have right now is I have my green and yellow type. And, you know, they were sold to me as both different localities unknown. And I've had to go and ask, you know, Indonesian people or, you know, there's um, foreigners that are, that are, that, that live there and they kind of have an idea. Some of them are, don't know some of them are you can tell they're lying or some of them are for sure and they're you know they're genuine about what they're telling you um it's very difficult to believe some people you just you barely know through the internet too you know and so just trying to really gather everything from everybody and with me i'm also looking at tongue color and overall kind of appearance you know um some of the localities aren't as big as the ones we used to get that are, you know, five-footers or four-and-a-half, five-footers. They're staying more like three feet. Um, and so I have a really tiny female, which is my original female. Um, 
And during that time, the male was small, but now he's close to five feet, and she is still only 24 inches. So I've puzzled, I've puzzled her now with a male that I got from Anthony Sainz, um, and he's just a smaller locality male. He's only about three feet long, and he's been that way for a couple of years. So I'm hoping he stays that small and he doesn't get too big. Um, their tongue colors match more. They're essentially mostly pink with a purple tip. Um, my other ones are completely purple, and I've I've kind of classed, just put them together just like that. You know, if, if their tongues aren't matching, maybe one is, is a, just a totally off species. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, they could be mangrove monitor types, but um, these two probably aren't a very similar type at all. And I, I'm sure they can all integrate some way or another. It's just I'm, I'm more so trying to puzzle in just the colors, the color type really. You know what I'm saying? They're, they're coming from all over. If I can get gather some babies that, you know, came off the shipment container together and work that way, but I actually, I haven't. I have never purchased, you know, two or three babies and raised them up, you know. No, that, that's, that's great. And actually, it makes me wonder because um, in the past, I've heard that a lot of the different um, mangrove or Indicus-like monitors, they just kind of get bunched together in the Indicus complex. And um, I believe, because um, we had Michael Cole on the uh, the show previously, and he was uh, talking about an Indicus um, monitor that they thought it was Indicus at least, and they wound up doing some testing on it, and they reclassified it, and I believe he's going to have it named Brannis Coli. Uh, don't quote me on that, I could, but I, I believe that that's what he was going to name it as. So just interesting, the, the variability. You were mentioning something I always thought was interesting too, the size difference, because when you talk about the size difference of like, you know, an animal that's like two or three feet versus one that's like five feet, I mean, that's pretty considerable. That's like double the size. So that's, um, right. I, I think it's really interesting, that variability. I think it's really, I mean, that's the exciting part too, I think. So. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, you know, some people are, you know, they're, they're, all 100% about purity and stuff like that. Right now, man, I'm just trying to figure it out. You know what I mean? Like, I'll get to the pinpointing and stuff like that later on, but if I just get them going now in any way, you know what I mean, just to get the females, for for one, recycling and receptive. You know, some that's that's the hard part is getting a female and a male. Like, I've I've had my males court a lot. And it's just the females that are, they're not friendly about it, you know. And um, I'll, I'll I'll look at them, and they look like they're going through a cycle, and they're, they're they're looking a little bloated, and I haven't fed them in a few days, so you know it looks like something. Um, and that's where, I guess that's where I guess I want to take the next topic is I've I've learned that I used to feed way too much, you know, and I try to not eat so much nowadays where yeah I'm still giving food but it's very little bit and they're not getting full maybe just a little bit here and there like I'll feed them every day or most of the week but it's just a little bit and then when it's time for me to send them through another cycle I'll just feed the female so much you know I'll I'll pound her till she can't even get any more and I'll cut the food items up until they're very very tiny so she can even eat more, you know, 
Um, and that's where I've, I've been the last several months, maybe a year now, is trying to work better on my diet as well um, and getting them, getting them a bit more lean at the same time, um, being able to recognize when she is going through her cycle instead of just being fat, you know? Yeah, no, that that's uh, that completely makes sense. So you you were touching base, basically on like husbandry and the way you keep them, you know, because you were referring to your your diet. So that's um that's something we usually like to cover. So maybe you could tell us about like your setup, like the size of your setup, depending on their their size and age of the animal, and you know temperatures and humidity, you know misconceptions right. people may have, you know things like that. Okay, um, keeping them, I I keep them hot. And humid, just like a lot of other other breeders out there. What I am doing though is I send them through like an estivation period where they're dry, and they are also not fed very much. Um, I lower the humidity down. I do have burrows that are deep that they can escape to if they want to go down there, and sometimes they just spend time down there anyways. Um, but I I try to lower the humidity and the food for a couple months and then that'll once I kick them back into gear with everything like that um, that'll hopefully trigger the female to go into a cycle and then get them to breed that also has been helping me keep them leaner um, instead of having them very chunky I think the diet that I have to use is is necessary for breeding at the same time it's it's can also make them, you know, pudgy and, and fat. You know, I, I, I do use rodent a lot. I use rodent and rats and mice, maybe 40 to 50% of my diet, and the rest is like seafood and chicks and other stuff. Um, and I, I try to – it's because the bone content in the mice is so great, and the rats is a lot, it's a lot better than some of the other food items. Um, that's been helping me. So not having to dust as much as uh, as some people do. I also keep them from. I try to keep them from ever having a period where they're lethargic. Um, I, I guess I I noticed that before when I would feed them so much, and then they'd go through a period where they didn't want to eat, you know, and um, I was scared to lose my lizards. Uh, then I learn these new practices that, you know, people are doing with tegus and they're doing with a lot of other animals. And these these are also techniques that are used by another monitor keeper to breed his own lace monitors. You know, and um, I don't know if you've heard of David Kirshner, and he breeds them. What, what was that? Of course, yeah. No, I definitely heard of him. Yeah, right. And um, so he's, you know, always sharing information on a lot of the different sites for monitors and he's helping people read their own monitors that are having difficulties or even wanting them to want to understand them, you know. Um, and so that's where I learned to essentially have a period of famine or a period that's that's just not so rich with food and everything. And a lot of people will have to get their monitors going, realize and see throughout the year just how they are, and then and then, then no, you know, it's just like some other species that are in the wild, they would typically go under, you know, like ball pythons or bearded dragons, you know, and a lot of people 
that have them as pets, just average pets, don't really know that. And then, you know, they go through, like, man, like, why isn't my animal eating so much? Or why is it doing this and that? Well, my animals are the same. And people say that their their temperatures out in the wild don't change and stuff like that. Well, they may not change, but the whole atmosphere does with moisture and everything. You know, they have a dry season and they have a wet season. And that's where taking the whole wanting to keep them correctly and me learning them throughout the years, well, hey, I, I should incorporate this. You know, maybe it'll have some success in their breeding or just keeping them alive longer. And and that's where I've, I've come to try to mimic a lot about what the wild does for them. And that I think that brought me some success in keeping them alive and and, and going towards breeding. Um, my enclosures, my enclosures are quite long. Um, they're roughly seven feet and like four feet by three feet, something like that. I typically have about a foot of soil, and then I have a nest bin that's about two feet of soil. Um, I really think they utilize everything and they would want more, but I, I just don't have the space. And, and heating up all that soil is also an effort in itself, you know. Um, I have deep nest bins that they use, but they can also, if they wanted to, lay in another area that has a heat pad down in the floor. Um, and that's been, I, I believe, one of the key factors to helping me learn my monitors with cycling. Um, it's very important for people to realize that if they have a female monitor lizard, man, she needs she needs everything that's essential to life to actually stay alive. Not just, you know, to be fed here and there, water change here and there, but she needs deep soil. She needs to be able to have a nesting area that she likes. And then during that time, when it comes time for her to nest with or without a male around, you know, you, you want that soil to be a certain temperature. And typically it's within 80 degrees. And, you know, there that a lot of times designate an, an area for reptiles to lay. It's not just monitors. It's a lot of lizards and a, a lot of reptiles that would like to lay right around that area. So if you have a, a temperature gun, you know, and you're able to dig down deep in your soils or where you want her to lay, if, if that temperature isn't a gradient between, you know, 79 and 80, you know, high 80s even, you'll have a difficult time with getting your female to lay, and she's more at risk of egg binding then. Um, as far as, like, me doing anything other than that, that's pretty much it, is the whole nest bin and, and having deep amounts of soil along with the heat and humidity has been keeping my females alive. I have actually killed a female flabby Argus cross back in 2011, and it was one that I, I raised from a little baby bred by Lance Payton and you know, um, it was uh, like one of my my prizes, you know, and I literally thought I was doing the right thing. I, I ended up getting a male, and I thought I was doing all the right stuff, and I did have deep amounts of sandy soil, but it wasn't heated. And so I think 
not having the right places to lay, she just went through reproductive complications. And I don't even know if the eggs even passed through to be fertilized or anything like that, but she ended up just having a bunch of seizures. And um, it really sucks to lose a female for one right in front of you, you know, watching her die in your hands. But it's a, it, you know, it's, it sucks to see them go downhill and you don't even know what's going on. Try to take my mistakes and learning, hey, like, I lost this female. Shit, I'm not going to try to do that again because that was heartbreaking, you know. And I raised that girl for a year and a half to put her with a male and get her going to only just thinking that I was doing the right things but just missing a lot of key factors that help, you know. Um, and I've learned them now, now that I have the female. And my females now, I think I got her from Sim Container, um, I would say it's four years ago, easy, three to four years now, and she's alive, you know, and she's a difficult species that's laying, so that means I'm doing something right, you know, and um, that's where I'm at now, you know. Uh, I would say that the one of the, the – it's very difficult to, to tell somebody that hasn't raised a lot of monitors – but mangrove types like it a bit cooler, keeping, like, white throats, niles, and even dwarf types. They they like it hot, and argus types, too. They like it really hot, you know, um, the goldie-eye types, where 150 surface temperature is nothing sometimes, you know, and, and uh, being 120 degrees ambient air temperature is almost fine to them, too. But the mangroves like, like it cooler. I notice they do a lot more... I'm not saying like the, the the surface temperatures are extremely low, but they're not much above 130, 140, you know, and and um, the rest of the ambient temperature of the cage is about 90. And once it gets to 100, 105, they start to retreat. And and when I have surface temperatures really really high, they don't use it. And so I, I, or they'll hang out by the side, and you know, it's a uh, commonly said, but, you know, some, some people might not take it the right way. It's you, you learn by watching your lizards, you know, you let them tell you and some people can't read that well. And, you know, they can't read between the lines or they can't see the behavior that these lizards are showing or, or not even behavior. you know, like you can tell when it's too hot, when they start lifting their legs up and, or they don't even go towards that area and, or they start twitching around the heat lamps and stuff like that. And, um, you know, I just try to get their behavior. If they're around the heat lamps way too long, I might, that might mean that it's too cool, you know, and it's not hot enough for them. Um, so I try to judge judge a lot of the bulbs that I use and, and the amounts of heat and everything like that. And so I, I happen to go a little bit cooler than what a lot of people recommend. Like I raised my young one who is now, you know, easily a foot and a half, almost two feet long, um, that I hatched out here last summer. Um, he's now just raised on maybe 115, 120 degree surface temperature, and the ambient there is you know 85, 90, 95 degrees. And it's not it's not as hot as some other some other um, keepers wanted, and it's because their th- their skin is very thin and peach throats. And you can see melanin. And I've I've made a a post about this with thermal burns, 
and um, they're notorious to get them. It's just because people, for one, aren't realizing that, you know, you need multiple bulbs to heat up a big lizard, and at the same time, it's people not realizing their surface temperatures are way too hot, or they're using, like, spot bulbs, and, and it's a, the rest of the cage is cool. Um, take into consideration that they need to check their whole cage and not have a a part of the cage that's kind of like a dead area where the animal doesn't really use it's it's dark or you know they don't they don't dig there and a lot of times it's because that area may be too cold or too hot you know so most of the time it's too cold where you know you just dumped a bunch of soil over there there's no lamp hitting that area there's not even light hitting that area and so that area just sits and it's a dull part of the cage um those parts of the cage I recommend people putting a lamp over there and or, you know, getting it heated up or shoving um, using like heat wire or something like that down there. And that way, you know, you don't have these parts of the cage that the lizard doesn't really use. Um, I used to have those a lot growing up where it'd be a part of the cage that I thought was just the cool end. And really, um, you know, some of those cool ends shouldn't go low, below much lower than 65 degrees. You know, and if if somebody has their cage on the floor in the basement, that draft of the cold floor kind of pools from the soil, and then making your making your enclosure too cool um, or cold, and your lizard gets trapped there, or it's just a part of the cage that isn't really useful. Um, I find I find that if their if their cage is really dark, they also don't see you that well and get very startled. And so, you know, I have even just just a bright light in there and or fluorescent tubes and they light up the whole cage and I realize my animals are less spooky that way, much less spooky. But when I'm coming at them and there's just a, a couple little floodlights in there and the rest of the cage isn't lit up, you know, they don't, they're more wary. From, from their standpoint, it's very dark. You're just coming into the cage and, you know, you become being thought of as a predator or someone trying to grab them, you know. Those are That's pretty much how I've been setting them up lately. Um, nothing really new. I try to just have a, a couple hides. No longer do I just deck out the entire cage, you know. Um, I try to keep it very basic. I've learned this just from watching everybody. And I may be a result of, of looking at everybody, too, is when you see my enclosures, you see my stuff, it's, uh, I do have a fair amount of soil, but I don't have tons and tons of it, you know, I, and I, I keep it kind of bare instead of having so much in there, and I'm literally copying people that are, have already, people like Anthony Staines, you know, and he's hatched out Brannis Melanis a couple times now, and, you know, I think he's working on some more, and when I went to go see him this last November, Thanksgiving, man, I I thought some you know, he would have a ton of ton of soil or something like that. But he has a nest in and and that has a lot of soil in it, but for the most part everything else is kind of bare bare. And his lizards are exposed to each other and they see each other and and essentially not so scared of each other all the time. And that's what I've been doing with my animals. Um, I've also copied a Indonesian guy who keeps his current pair of 
mangrove monitors on just um, gravel. You know, he has big gravel, and he does have a water dish and stuff like that and some logs to climb, but his soil, I mean, he doesn't have any. He really doesn't have any at all until the female needs to lay. But for the most part, they are exposed to each other 100% of the time, you know. And uh, that's that's been helping me because now I can see more, for one. They're not just darting off. But the lizards are doing things in 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 public or, you know, in front of me anyways. It's been it's been more helpful. I I didn't want to do this for the longest time because I thought that if I took away the the hive, my female would die because she'll just she'll get beat up. But, you know, slowly taking away each hide, I've realized that, hey, that's all right. It's not that bad. And I, it was more me being scared, you know, and when you're scared, you're just, you're not, you're not doing the right things or more so you're underestimating your lizards too, you know what I mean? And I want people to be out there and, yeah, these things are very aggressive towards each other, but you have to try, you know, and, um, anybody that is out there now, you know, that's worried about introduction or things like that, um, them ripping each other up or just uh, how to go about it, it's not very, it's not simple at all. And I'm, and me saying just putting some of them together, I'm just more so wanting to push people past that scared point that you will have, you know, scared money don't make no money. You know what I mean? You have to go and you have to try this, get them out into mutual zoning or in some bathroom or in a, in a cage that they, both, that they both don't know and, you know, try to introduce them together, feed them together, um, have them swim around together, you know, and it'll make things easier from when you just have to plug in a male. Sometimes that does not work, you know, just plugging in another animal, especially if you don't know when to do it. Sometimes even doing it at that time can get them killed, Um I think the one of the best approaches with this type of species is to raise them young together. Um, that's the best thing to do is to raise them young together, let them get to know each other before before the adolescent stage and before the subadult stage, and they start to you know get more aggressive, claim areas more, and things like that. Um, that's how I've been able to with my with this pair that's breeding. I've been able to raise them when they were very small together. Not not nims or not not neonates or anything like that, but you know, maybe roughly only a few months old and I think my male was only like a, a couple years old and he wasn't really a big guy yet. And so he was still young. You know, I, I had them in a in a seven foot cage with a partition and then I would let them smell each other and that way they would at least see each other, get used to each other then. But I didn't introduce them until about a year later, like fully introduced because I was I was really scared. The female was small, like maybe 18, 20 inches, um, and the male was, you know, 24, 30 inches. And I thought he could easily eat her if he really wanted to, you know, but he didn't. And um, I'm glad that I'm glad that he didn't. But I, I think if I were to do that on the whim and they didn't even know each other at all, she would probably be dead, you know, and um, – I have an original pair that I that I started with years ago, and it was probably like a year or two prior to this pair. 
Um, that was maybe like I would say five years ago, give or take. Those guys like wanted to kill each other. Um, the male was just raised alone, you know, and I had him for four or five years by himself. Never really saw another monitor lizard. And the only time he saw them was, you know, across the hall in another cage, and it was a different type of lizard, you know, but he never really got to, like, get used to them or even his own species. And so when I introduced the female, um, he would just rip her up. He would any, any chance he'd get, whether it be out of the cage, in the cage, and me there with a broom, you know, trying to use the broom so that way he's not biting her, um, things like that, and uh, I, I gave up on that male. I, I ended up rehousing him, even though he was my pet for years. I wanted to get into breeding only because I think I was I think I was getting somewhere with the species. Um, yeah, just uh, that whole jumping in in there, that's, that's a very difficult thing, and uh, anybody that doesn't want to do it, uh, I, I I hear you too. You know, you want to keep your animals healthy without, you know, all the scars and stuff like that. But I think you guys go through with the species that you breed as far as water monitors. You know, they, they bite each other too, and they rip each other up too, and sometimes you have to separate them, you know. And uh, it's hard to do the next step once you've separated them after a fight, you know. Um, I... I tried to let little battles, little battles happen. But once they become, you know, the appendages that are, like, being almost ripped off or, you know, a really bad head wound, I try to, I try to, remove, I try to remove the female um, from that situation. You, you made, um, you covered a lot of really good topics, and you actually covered – you know, a good amount on breeding, which which is great, because I actually had a couple questions um, about the breeding, too. But before I ask my questions, J.D., did you have, a, did you have any questions, J.D.? Well, I do remember a show I did, we did in the past, and it was with uh, Dr. Sprack. And he was, he was a, you know, he was in Asia and uh, Indonesia, and he was doing a lot of New Guinea and all that stuff, but he did a lot of peel research on mangrove monitors. And, right. Uh, yeah, it was really cool. You know, he has it in that giant book. It's called Giant Lizards. He had a lot of that information in there. But uh, it was it was very different. And, you know, when, you know, he would come up with some of the names to help him classify most of them and stuff. And so, I mean, that, that was back, you know, was it in the 90s or something? So, I mean, yeah. and he was finding all different species. But I was just talking to him and, he was, you know, that's pretty much what he was saying. He goes, he goes, it's a great piece to work with. And so he just wanted to tell me you're doing a good job. Yeah. You know, they're, they're all over. Um, I was, uh, every single time that I have something come up, I always message Dr. Spracklin. Um, you know, a lot of people don't give him credit or they don't acknowledge him much anymore, you know, but I, I, I do, you know, I, I still see, his work, he can draw a monitor skull from scratch on a napkin for you. You know what I mean? That's how good he is. Um, and, uh, yeah, he told me, too, that the monitor, the mango monitors are just so, they're so variable. You know, that's what makes them awesome. They come in all, all kinds, all kinds of colors and, and temperament, too. You know, some come in so tame, but some come, like, 
man, they're really aggressive. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, that's that's the the cool thing too is, you know, I've been able to cross two different types of unknown localities, and the one that I have now, I think you guys have seen pictures of it, doesn't look much like. I mean, yeah, slight glimpses of the parents, but the parents didn't even have this color. Like my female, that is the mother of this this one that grew up. She's blue and silver and white, but the male, he has a little bit of greens and some peach and yellows, but not a lot, and the baby is like a, like an amazing hot yellow, um, you know, the, the contrast of it and, and the blacks that come in and are fading, and I didn't realize, I thought more blues or another color would come in, but as the black is spreading, and it's fading away during this transformation from, you know, when they're born and from when they're adults. Now it looks completely different. It looks way different than what the babies did. I mean, what the, what it did as a baby and what it does compared to the adult. And, you know, that's, what's great to see is I didn't, I didn't think they'd be this variable, you know, and they come out, you can essentially, it's like, uh, I can't really put it together, but it's like, colubrids, you know, and and doing similar types of colubrids together, and they may not be from the same same spot and everything like that, but they can interbreed and they make something crazy, and you know, that's, that's what's cool about the hobby still, you know, it's, um, you see new things all the time, and and I didn't think that it'd be this way, you know, I, I thought it'd be more, yeah, they're just going to come out, whatever, dull looking, but you know, when I look at it, my thing's on fire. You know, like that mangrove monitor, it's, it's just one. And probably the siblings that I do have in the future may look like it, but, you know, to hatch it out and to raise it now being roughly 10 months old or 8 months old or something like that, and it uh, looks incredible, you know. and that, that That's awesome. Um, so a question I have about about breeding, you were talking about your um, your nesting box and then you also have some pretty deep substrate there. So, and sometimes, um, at least in the past, you said you had issues with some of the substrate being a bit too cool and then having egg binding issues. What did you do to alleviate that to, to get your nest box warmer? I always like hearing what, what other people do, um, especially um, this time of the year, because depending on where you live, it might be yeah. you know, cool where you are this time of the year, most of the U.S., so keeping substrate right. warm enough may be of an issue. Um, so in the last, Three years, I've used many different methods, but the one that has stuck to me the most and the best is it's been this, um, it's a pig blanket or a dog blanket. This one that I'm using, though, doesn't get as hot as the Red King mask, um, and there's also a, uh, a trigger on it to have it go back down in temperature. So it's, a, it's pretty smart. Um, as far as a durable heat pad, you know, I didn't want to shove a flex wad in there, you know. I didn't want to shove anything that the monitors can damage themselves, you know, and then cause a fire or get electrocuted or whatever, you know. So I've gone through I've gone through cable. I've, I've even done um, two, li- two Tupperware lids, right, two huge Rubbermaid lids. And I lined the inside with reptile cable, and then I just enclosed it. You know, I drilled a couple holes to let the whole thing breathe as it's underground. 
and I used that for about a year, but I, you know, I ended up thinking, man, this is not safe. This is just some jerry-rigged thing that I just put together, you know. Um, and that's that's yeah. just a that was just a heap of soil then, you know. And um, now, like I had, I think I just I just removed the flex walk out of a nest bin, and um, it was on the side of a nest bin on the outside. And um, now that I have this enclosure set up differently. I've removed that out, and I just now have that sitting on top of the, the that that dog mat that I was telling you about, and it's just a heated dog mat. It gets only about 110 degrees, and then going that heat transferred through soil through another bin gets 80, 85 degrees. Um, so that's been helping me. Some people I've uh, I've seen use, and myself as well, in smaller enclosures. I've uh, used the heat lamp and dropped it down maybe a foot or two above the soil level, and then having that lamp hit a slate rock that was buried into the sand or buried into the soil, you know, and so that, that heat would transfer down. Um, there's, a, there's, I guess, you know, all types of ways. Some people use, like, piping in the flooring, or some people use... Um, when they run, when they run water, hot water through, you know, or some people have used like a this sort of heat cable through PVC, and then they've buried that, and that that I'm, that's probably protecting the the reptile cable much better than my idea, um, and you know just every, you see here there's like five six different things all ways to help you heat the soil, and you essentially unless you live on the equator. And somewhere really hot all the time, and you don't have to worry about it. Then you should have some type of heated nest bin or a heated nest area, and it doesn't have to be the entire cage because you know you want to have a cool end of the cage, something that's 75 where the soil is. But what has helped me the most is getting that pocket of soil where I designated the nesting area to be in the 80s, and uh, that's that's been the the help that has been working for me. Oh, okay. Yeah, that that completely um that that's definitely a logical step to take and that I like the idea with the um the heat cable through the PVC. So that's um that, that's that's pretty good. Okay. So you have um some interesting projects going on. Obviously it seems like you focus a lot on the mangroves which which is excellent. So what are you really excited about right now? Do you have like a pair that you're really focusing on because they have, you know, such and such certain look to them? Uh, what, what, what do you yeah. feel like is your focus on projects that you're really looking forward to? Um, I, I'm focused in pretty much. I have, I have, a, I have three pairs. Um, I have a really young pair, which is one that I got from Anthony Sainz as a very young one, though. I got it as a baby, and I matched. I try to match it up with the one that I hatched out. Um, so far, by looking at their vents, and they're about two feet now, um, they look like a pair. And the way they behave, too, um, they're, just, they're just growing up. I'm excited for them when they're ready in about a, maybe a year or eight months or so, give or take. Um, I have a male and my original female, the male I got from Anthony Sainz just recently in December. Um, so it's only been with me maybe a month or so. 
but he's a very well-behaved boy, even better than my guy, and he's uh, he's a stud. Like, he's always trying, you know what I mean? And he's, he's just trying, and the female is just laying there, and I don't think he's getting it. But I think once he matures a little bit more, he'll get it, and um, they're, they're blue. They're very, very blue. I don't know if that it's going to transfer later on, but when they were young, they were blue. Now they're still very, very blue. Um, the yellow on them has it's it's gone. It's not really there anymore. And then I have a big pair. Um, the male is four and a half feet. The female is easily three feet, and uh, they're they're high yellow. The the female is extremely yellow, and the male has greens and yellows on them and peach. And I'm excited about them too. I'm I'm more I'm really because I've you know tried to make changes, you know, as you go, like, hey, they're not, there's something, something's up, or they're, they've grown in size, too, and so I'm just trying now to accommodate, and so I've really only moved everybody in the last month, and so hopefully the new cages is going to trigger them, I don't know if you've heard, but a lot of female monitors, when moved to a new place, a lot of times they'll, they'll go into cycle, um, and, you know, it's just, uh, I'm hoping that that triggers them to go into a cycle and get going for this next year. But if not, I'm going to wait until the summertime, and then I'll uh, I'll let them ha- let them have their few months of settling in, getting used to each other. And that's what sucks is it takes time. You know, nothing is done in days or even weeks. I kind of have to wait and wait and try to find the perfect timing. Um, with the weather too, you know what I mean? And so it's like summertime, I'm not going to really be able to have a great cool down, but once it's right past summer, I'll have already transitioned them and then slow them down on meals, slow them down, warm them back up with food and humidity and everything like that and try to get the ball rolling again. Um, some stuff that I'm kind of excited about is the Kimberleys. Uh, I just maybe had them for about maybe seven, eight months or so, give or take. And uh, they're much different species than I've ever kept, extremely fast, like little lizard squirrels, you know. And I'm excited about those, too. I've uh, I contemplated possibly rehousing them, but they look like a pair and I've actually kind of grown fond of them because they're very fun to watch you know from my my mangroves to the Kimberleys you know the Kimberleys kind of give you that satisfaction but sometimes when I go to my mangrove cages everybody darts and everybody kicks off and and even the males that are tame as hell they'll, they'll be like oh I'm just going to go hide because you know you're not supposed to be here and I don't really want to see you you know and that's what, that's, that's what I take from them no, those those are really great projects. If there if there was um, if people wanted to check out your projects more, I mean, obviously you're on Facebook and you probably have other social media outlets. Maybe you have a site as well. Did you want to give out some of that information so people could check out your projects more and find out how to get in contact with you? Um, they can. I mean, really, I'm just going by my name. It's no like business or anything like that yet. You know, um, people can just add me on Facebook or message me. I'm pretty, uh, I would say, responsive, you know. 
Um, a lot of people come to me already from just just being on Facebook or, you know, seeing some of the stuff that are, are in the groups and things like that. And I kind of, I'll partake in a lot of them where, like the Savannah group or whatever, and um, or even the Indicus group. And, you know, there's there are people that, that need help. A lot of just understanding. A lot of people don't really get the whole basis of respect and boundaries for your monitor lizards, especially ones that you need to learn um, what to do, what not to do, things like that. Some misconceptions, you know, like like soaking and stuff like that. I don't know. Just um, there's a lot of people out there that just don't understand these lizards, and, it's, and there's no one to blame. They're just learning, you know what I mean? And um, people can just message me. It's simple as that. Okay, perfect. That's perfect. Um, JD, did you have any um, any final questions for um, for for him? Uh, Kai, I want to thank you for coming on. It was a great show, brother. Hey, thanks for having me. I'll we'll have to do All it right, again here. Have a good night. What was that? Sorry. Good, JD. What do you think about that? What do you think about that show, brother? Oh, that was great. I mean, he he did a great job. It was a lot of really good information. And the Indicus complex in general, just it's just super interesting from, you know, the different sizes and different locales, different looks, different colors. And um, it, it was nice to hear more about it. And it was nice to hear how different keepers, you know, keep these lizards. So it was awesome. I think it was really cool. And, uh, you know, it's just a, that's a great species. And they did a lot more work, you know. The water monitors have come a long ways, but you know more and more people are getting into breeding monitors, so that's that's really cool. Yeah, and it's good to see people working with um, species that that you know aren't worked with as much, or at least in the past weren't worked with as much. Because you know who knows, you know, just like you know, there's there's certain species now that are very hard to come by, but you know, ten, twenty years ago they were pretty commonplace. And as you know, time goes on, you know, regulations unfortunately get tend to get stricter and stricter. So a lot of these species that we take for granted, um, you know, they may not be here a few years from now. So we do need, you know, people working with them so we could still, you know, have these animals in captivity so we could actually enjoy them. So I think um, yeah. you know, what he's doing is, is excellent. No, absolutely. I think, you know, any, I mean, I've seen a couple of species that have come and gone, you know, the, you know, you're not going to see anymore. And I, I think it's coming for the, you know, the, a couple of species that have just come up too that you know they're you're not gonna get imports as much so you're gonna you know you have to catch a breed them yeah and and like i said you know you know recently it happened you know more and more and more i feel like you know every few months something else is getting a bit a bit more regulated so um but so yeah it's great to see people you know captive breeding you know different species more often so Actually, I'm sitting here right now, bro, and I just looked at the temperature of my basin area up there. It was 135, <laughs> and the male just sitting there, ain't soaking it all in there. Oh yeah, surface temp of 135. You know, that's that's a pretty good surface temp because he could get in there and he could, uh, you know, absorb, and then he could bring his core body temperature up, you know, to a pretty decent level. It's actually pretty interesting because a lot of orangutans, their core uh, body temperature that they actually prefer is, is similar to. Uh, to that of people almost so that's you know that that's their core temperature 
but for them to reach that core temperature, they actually have to have a, a pretty high basket, uh, surface temp. So, but yeah, no, so that, that's excellent. That's good that you're able to get those ranges. So the cage is working out then. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I, you know, I'm actually using some of their other sponsor products in there, like the reptile UV bulbs and the, the ceramic heaters and stuff from Zilla. So, I mean, actually it has come together pretty good. And that's cool. It's and like a hybridized sponsor enclosure. So. Yeah. And of course the animals themselves came from you. So that's, you know, this is even twice as good. So. And I said they're, they're, how they have come a long ways and stuff like that. I said these guys are so used to me anymore that, you know, they definitely have personalities. I mean, people, I mean, people say it all the time, but I'll say it now because I said these are the first monitors that I had that actually, you know, blew me away how they acted. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, like, lizards in general. You know that. I have, you know, all different kinds of lizards, um, and a lot of them have their own, you know, uh, different characteristics that are pretty interesting. But with the monitor lizards, I mean, monitor lizards and, you know, monitor lizards and crocodilians probably, those are two of the you know, most intelligent, you know, reptiles. So it's really interesting to see how monitor lizards interact with people and one another and the way they observe things. I mean, they're just such an interesting species, very, very smart. Lizards, very smart. Oh, very smart. I agree with that, brother. And uh, next week we have a cool show coming up. Uh, we have Michael Rodriguez coming on, and he's going to be talking about Euromastics. So this is going to be the first Euromastics show we have done. Uh, I, I'm a huge fan of Euromastics, especially the Moroccan Euromastics, uh, particularly the dab lizards uh, that that Bert used to work with. Um, oh, yeah. I wonder if you know, hope maybe. I'm sure next week he could tell us, but maybe he even works with that species. I'm not sure which species of your masters he works with, but I'm looking forward to next week so he can tell me more about it. I actually have a few. I don't really post them, so most people don't know. I actually have a few different species of your masters. I have Egyptian your masters, and I have a, one dab lizard that I'm growing up. I'm trying to get some more dab lizards. Um, so I, I, I enjoy them a lot, so that's going to be a really cool show. Yeah, they're really cool. And actually, I think we had I have somebody else lined up for your masters also. But I didn't want to put them back to back, but I kind of pushed them to the next month. <laughs> so, you know, from That'll something awesome. that you didn't hear about, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I said they kind of remind me of the Chuckwallows. So, <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that because they actually remind me of Chuckwallows, too. Um, that's actually one of the reasons I got into Chuckwallows is that because they remind me of the Euromasters that I like so much, except that, you know, with Chuckwallows being a bit more cold tolerant um, than most of your masters because most of your masters obviously come from warmer regions. So. But yeah, no, they do remind me of that. So that's going to be really, it's a really interesting show. I'm really, I'm really excited. I look forward to it every single week interviewing different guests. And, you know, next week is definitely going to be you know, an awesome show. Oh, definitely, brother. Uh, we'll end this show here. I'll play our long uh, long sponsor ads here, but I did want to say something else. Uh, check out Cold-Blooded Cast and mention Lizard Outer, Herpa Time Radio, and they'll give you like a 10% that discount. Oh, yeah, Forest and Cold-Blooded cold Cafe. Yeah, no, they have some awesome um, rodents. When I got my order in, I mean, it was just nice and cleanly packed. It came... You know, completely solid frozen, even though it was a warm day here when it came. It was like a 
unseasonably warm day. I think it was like almost 70 degrees that day here in South Carolina. And they were perfect, and they looked great. So they have great products. Yeah, check them out. I'm brother. I'll play it out here, and we'll see Customcages.com. We have over 20 years of experience building high-quality reptile housing, including the Majestic, Hybrid, and Suncatcher enclosures, as well as the Vision Products brand of cages and bin racking systems. The following are the Lizard Hour sponsors. Check out ReptileUV.com for your lighting needs and education. Home of the original designer and extended warranty on select Mega Ray UV bulbs. Remember, reptile lighting is a process, not a bulb. Fairy Tale Dragons specialize in high-quality morphs of dragons, annals, geckos, and much more. Check them out on Facebook. Innovative Ectotherms, specializing in chuckawallas, morphs, colored lizards, and more. Look for them on Facebook. Herptofauna by Josh Ortiz, specializing in Asian water monitors, lacertas, tegus, and many more. Lizard Hour is presented by Herpentime Radio. And here's our Lizard Hour sponsors. Tropical Reptiles and Exotics has some of the best tegus around and many other reptile projects. Go and check them out on Facebook. Look for the albino tegu in profile pictures. ZillaRules.com For all our reptile and amphibian pets needs, check out Zilla's products catalog at ZillaRules.com. Feed those hungry reptiles at ColdBloodyCafe.com. Get prices online and nationwide flat rate shipping. Stony LLC, check him out. He's got the animal equipment we need for the great snake hooks, stump rippers, and other great products. Reptilesbysands.com. Captive bred monitors, mangrove blue tails, working on the whiteout water monitors, and many more species to come. Check them out, reptilesbysands.com. Don't forget, everybody, support the U.S. ARC. They fight for us to keep the herps. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.